Coming to you from Silicon Valley, I'm Marcus Edwards, and I'm on the hunt for recruiting leaders, producers, innovators, and pioneers who've made their mark on the industry and can't wait to share their points of view. We'll tackle the tough topics and dig deep to find the answers you're looking for and some actionable advice you can take to the bank. So stick around and stay tuned and welcome to Recruiting Trailblazers. Okay, so I'm really excited about my guest today. He is a senior talent acquisition specialist at Cone Resnick, which is one of the large public accounting firms. He started his career at Robert Half, um, and his LinkedIn profile has some very Marvel-like qualities to it because my guest's name today is David Daredevil O'Claire. So welcome, David. How's it going? Hey, Marcus. I couldn't be better. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thanks, and happy to have you on the show. We've been talking about doing this for quite a while now, so looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. Found you during the uh, the pandemic and been a, been a fan ever since. Oh, well, thanks thanks for saying that. Yeah. Um, now, let's talk about your handle. What, what do accounting and recruiting and being a daredevil have in common, David? Well, <clears throat> I got to give credit to where it's due. Um, one of your your guests was Mike Batman Cohen, and I loved how they, you know, they are nicknaming their staff. And, you know, my last name, it's it's hard to pronounce. It's easy to forget how to spell. So I figured if I throw this in there, it'll be super easy to find me on LinkedIn. I can just tell people if you forget my name, but you just remember that bald guy with a beard, just punching daredevil, and I'm the only result that pops up. Um, and then the other side of it is I've jumped out of seven per perfectly good airplanes. I love skydiving. It's a fun hobby of mine. Um, and then the last thing is that I read this book called Daredevil Psychology uh, around the show and the uh, the movie. And as I was reading through my book, I just saw myself all over the pages and how I think and how the character Matt Murdock operates. And so it just sort of made sense when you, you bring all those facts together. <laughs> That's amazing. And it's nice that you gave um, you know Mike Batman Cohen a, a nod there, because I was thinking about bringing him up, thinking he's the only other superhero recruiter I know. And there you go. He inspired you. So that's brilliant. Um, I mean, let, let's take this thought one step further here for a second. Let's talk about courage and recruiting for a minute, because, I mean, let's face it, it's easy to take the path of least resistance in this profession, um, you know, because there's always so much to do. There's almost so much stuff to react to and take care of and, and interviews and emails. But I actually think it takes courage to do some of the tougher stuff. Um, that can potentially leave you, you know, exposed to rejection and disappointment. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, I agree a hundred percent. Whether it's you know reaching out to a candidate, reaching out to a business, um, even internally, you know, reaching out to our partners. These are some some uh, I don't want to say powerful people, but you know they they carry a lot of weight and a lot of authority with them. And picking up the phone to call them to discuss something or or to even push back on them, you know, if they say no to a candidate after an interview and telling them, you know. Yes, I think you should, you know, give this person another, another consideration. Uh, agreed. Yeah, it does take some courage. Yeah, I think there are a lot of aspects of recruiting where courage can really help you. Like you said, pushing back on potential candidates and clients, um, making those extra few calls or sending those extra few, I don't know, in-mails um, instead of going home or going, you know, to happy hour. And uh, I think there's a lot of, you know, areas in this business that we're in, which, you know, if you really put yourself in a position of slight discomfort, you can achieve incredible things, right? Agreed. Yep. Yeah. Good. Okay. Well, moving on from daredevilness and courage, um, 
I'm big on developing the right mindset as a recruiter because I think a lot of this is about mindset. You've got to have a really, especially in this market, a really positive and, and growth mindset. And I happen to know because of our pre-chat that you're interested in the practice of upstream thinking, which I, I wasn't really familiar with until you mentioned it to me. But can you talk to me a little bit about what upstream thinking is and how it applies to recruiting? Yeah, so upstream thinking, I'm glad you asked. Um, It it comes from a book called Upstream, written by a guy named Dan Heath. I just finished it uh, in late 2021. And essentially, the easiest way to think about it is imagine that you and a friend are heading out to have a picnic next to the river. And as you're unfolding your picnic blanket and you're opening up the basket to get out your tuna sandwiches and your chips and your lemonade, whatever it is that you would bring on a picnic, you hear some shouting and some yelling and you turn around and there's a uh, there's a kid drowning in the river. So naturally, you and a friend run over to the river, you jump in and you fish this kid out of the water. As you're making sure that the child is okay, you hear more shouting and there's another kid floating down the river. So you jump in and you save this kid. And And the process continues to repeat itself over and over again. And you're getting tired and wondering how you're going to keep going and how you're going to have the energy to keep saving these kids. And right in that moment of doubt, your friend gets out of the water, making the situation even worse and starts walking upstream. And you yell at your friend and say, hey, where are you going? And your friend turns around and says, I'm going to go take out the guy that's throwing all these kids in the river. So it's essentially a a way of thinking that if, if I'm running into some sort of problem, being I'm not getting new clients, I'm not getting good candidates or or even in your you know your personal life um, you know you're having trouble with with the boss or with one of your coworkers instead of repeating the process over and over and not seeing a different result what's a way that we can walk upstream and and solve this issue from from a different mindset and upstream thinking has been used to solve everything from um, you know in, that's increased graduation rates in the public school system to decreasing the homeless numbers to um, to recruiting you know and it's it's something that I think about often when I'm when I feel like I'm running into a brick wall what's the way that I can go upstream and and solve this problem yeah I mean do you have any specific examples where upstream thinking might help you know your average recruiter or your excellent recruiter um, in terms of the work that they do on a daily basis yeah you know for me the way I do it is I, I think there's a lot a lot of people out there, a lot of recruiters that are a lot smarter than than I am. So the way I go upstream in recruiting is just to gain as much knowledge from others as I can, whether that's listening to podcasts. Um, I just finished uh, uh, the Recruiter's Copy Clinic from one of your guests from 2020, I believe, um, to uh, reading books. Just got a new book called The Copywriter's Handbook. So I, I'm always just thinking of, you know, with with what is it, 19,000 recruiting agencies in the U.S., candidates are are hearing a lot of noise. And what's a way with all of these thousands upon thousands of recruiters that are reaching out to these candidates that I can cut through the noise? And I think it's to make my messaging as best as it can possibly be, as unique as it can be. And so that's why I utilize to- tools like the um, on LinkedIn. You can met- send people audio messages now. Um, I, I utilize Loom, the video messaging service, so people can see that this message was created for them um, by a real person and, and whatnot. Um, so th- those are all ways that I'm trying to go upstream in the recruiting world these days. 
So yeah, so upstream thinking is is a great way to think about when you're reaching out to people day in, day out, and you're just not getting the results that you're looking for is to go upstream a bit on the problem and think, well, doing the same thing over and over again isn't necessarily going to yield different results. So maybe it's a strategy thing. Maybe you should be focusing more on developing content or personalization. I think it's amazing what you just said. I'm a huge fan of personalization, which you'll know if you listen to the podcast. And the fact that you're actually taking the time to record videos, is every message that you send completely personalized? Um, I would say 80%. So mo- most of them are, you know, um, thinking back on on my days with Robert Half and doing the, uh, what do they call it? The, the spray and pray method where you, you mass email uh, a few hundred people and, and hope that one or two of them will reach back out and, and you know, maybe you'll get a hire. Um, I just found that that never really worked for me. I didn't like it. Um, it felt lazy. It felt like it wasn't very effective. Um, and there's some days I do it. You know, there's some days to this day where I'll have four internal hiring managers all telling me we need people, we need people. And I sort of panic a little bit. <laughs> and so instead of thinking of quality, I go back to quantity. But for the most part, um, you know, after listening to you and so many other professionals who who seem to find that customization works out better, um, I try to stick with it as much as possible. Yeah, I've always thought that 20 personalized messages will outperform 100 templated messages. But um, there are other arguments about how you can sort of not necessarily personalize every message, but segment every message. So if you're talking to a bunch of people in the same city or, you know, with exactly the same job title, then you can make it look like it's personal. And, um, and that's almost as good as personalization. And that's called segmentation. And um, from a mindset perspective, you know, I think it's just crucial that everybody gets out of their own way at the moment and and thinks about things that they can do to distinguish themselves and thinks about things that they can do differently because just this relentless outreach to more and more people isn't going to work in the long run. And I think we're going to get into content. I talk about content all the time on this particular podcast and it plays a very important part, I think, in a lot of successful recruiters that I know. And um, we're going to touch a bit on that later on. Um, So sticking with mindset for a moment, I also happen to know that you've got a few mental tricks up your sleeve when it comes to messaging. And it's got something to do with the reticular activating system, which apparently is, I don't know, a bundle of nerves that are brainstem that filters out unnecessary information. You did some research. Yes. Um, So let me ask you a question. Have you uh, have you ever bought a car? Yes, I have bought a car. What what kind of car was it? What color? What year? Okay, most recently it was a Jeep Grand Cherokee, um, a black one, and uh, two years old. So after you purchased that black Jeep uh, Grand Cherokee, did you start noticing other black Jeeps everywhere? Um, I mean, that's a good point. In fact, I lied because I recently bought my daughter a mini a Mini Cooper, a Mini Countryman. And when she turned 16 and she said to me all of a sudden, after a few days, there's cars like mine everywhere. So, yes, I can relate to that statement. 
All right, perfect. I'm, I'm glad the, the example worked. Um, so essentially, when what the reticular activating system does is when something because, becomes important to you or when it, it becomes valued to you, your mind will automatically go, go, to, go to work finding more of that thing. And that's why your daughter started seeing that car everywhere because she had that car. It was a special gift from her dad and it carried a lot of weight and value in her, in her mind to her. So as that relates to recruiting, I've noticed that with my with my messaging, I'm thinking about it so often that anytime I see an ad for anything, be it a car, toilet paper, <laughs> you know, you name it, I, I immediately put it through my filter of <clears throat> how could I cater this to an accountant that someone in the public accounting world would want to hear? Is this a good message or is it a bad one? People will say things at the gym just in conversation and I'll get out my phone and probably look really rude because all of a sudden I'm madly typing <laughs> into my phone and they said, what, what, what are you doing? And I said, what you just said was perfect. And I'm going to send that to 30 people tomorrow and see if it works and if it resonates to people. Uh, the way it resonated with me. So my mind is just always going to work looking for that messaging. And that's why you hear some people such as, um, you know, like a Tony Robbins type figure or an Ed Milet or a Gary Vaynerchuk. If you've ever heard one of these types of public speakers talk about doing a gratitude exercise or every night I journal um, one of a couple things. What am I grateful for? Did I wrong anyone today? Do, do I need to ask anyone for forgiveness? And then write down two or three things that I did right. And because my mind knows that every night it's going to get asked that question before bed of, of you know, what am I grateful for? Did I do anything wrong? And what did I do great? I notice these things throughout the day um, just naturally and they come to me and I'll jot them down real quick. Um, and I, I find that, you know, I think I'm, a, I'm more positive because of it, because I'm focusing on the things that I'm doing good. And, and, and instead of focusing on anger and then your reticular activating system is going to work looking for things to get angry about, um, it, it's looking, you know, to develop myself and to think about positive things and messaging. That's pretty interesting. So you're actually probably doing more good stuff as well in, in advance of having to journal about it later on in the day. That's pretty interesting stuff. I don't journal, but maybe I'll give it a go tonight. I started about three months ago, and I think it's a good it's a good healthy habit. It takes three to four minutes. You know, it doesn't have to be paragraphs. Just a, a few thoughts about your day. Yeah, learning new things on this podcast every week. Now, the final thing on mindset we're going to discuss is how recruiters deal with the fear of failure and how we deal with all the inevitable disappointment and rejection. And I think this might tie back a bit into the reticular activating system, but how do you deal, you know, with the downside that inevitably you, you feel sometimes in this profession of recruiting? Yeah, I, I appreciate that question. I, after college, I read a book uh, called Getting Naked. Have you heard of that one by chance? No, I've seen Naked and Afraid on TV though. Uh, got it. Got it. So Getting Naked is um, its a story in a book about dealing with fear. And as I was reading through it, and it was identifying different fears, such as fear of losing, fear of embarrassment, fear of inferiority, it made me think back on my days of college when I was in a class called DS101. I think it stands for data science. Super exciting, <laughs> exciting stuff. And at the college I was going to, if you fail any one class three times, you get kicked out of the school. So, you know, all of that time, money, and energy, um, you're, you're knocked out. It's all for nothing. And sure enough, I failed DS101 once, and then I failed it again the second time. And going into that third semester of taking this class again and knowing that the stakes were high, I realized that I, I had a lot of 
fears. I had a fear of raising my hand, and that also could be some some pride, you know, trying to answer questions that the professor asks and not maybe knowing the answer or not. I had a feel of fear of not looking smart in front of my friends, you know, oh, David doesn't know everything. He got kicked out of the school of business. Um, I had a, just a lot of embarrassment and inferiority and just all these different fears that I didn't realize at the time were driving my life. And in order to pass that class that semester, I ended up doing a few things differently. On day one, I showed up 15 minutes early and I asked the professor, I said, hey, I'm not going to come up here and ask you for a passing grade, but I do want you to know we're going to form a partnership this this semester and we're going to get me through this class because if I fail it, <laughs> I'm done. And I showed up early every day that semester. Um, I raised my hand to every question, even if I didn't know the answer, probably to a point the other students were getting annoyed um, that I was taking all the talking time. I went to all my professor's office hours and ultimately I passed the class. And I think that by, um, you know, acknowledging that fear was driving my decisions and how that relates to today, I try not to just let it drive my decisions anymore. You know, as we were talking about earlier, whether it's cold calling a candidate, um, if I messed up owning that mistake and not being afraid to own that mistake and just tell my partners and my hiring managers, hey, I dropped the ball on this. I apologize. Um, I've learned from it and now we're going to move forward. You know, I, I like to think that at this point of my life, fear is no longer the thing in the seat of the car of my life that's driving all my decisions. It's it's something else now. It's whether you want to call it, you know, courage or I finally just wanted to <laughs> start my life and not have fear be the basis for, for my decisions. There's, there's something else there now. That's amazing. And I, I think that's something that we all suffer. Um, and in the recruiting profession, as I alluded to previously, um, there is a lot of disappointment and rejection that we have to deal with. And your little explanation there, um, or your example in the classroom, reminded me of a book that I read called The Obstacle is the Way, which is based on the sort of the stoic philosophy that the impediment to action advances action if you actually address your problem head on, as you were doing by raising your hand when you were afraid of raising your hand, then that actually, you know, scares the problem away and gives you the space to sort of recover from that fear. Um, when it comes to rejection and disappointment in recruitment, which we all experience plenty of, I think maybe more so on the agency side than on the internal side. But I've always thought, well, is this rejection personal? Is it coming from somebody I love? <laughs> And that's really the only rejection that matters to me. And when I realize it's not someone who I love or who loves me, who's rejecting me, then I can dismiss it and move on and actually use it as an excuse to say to myself, I'm one step closer to my next goal. And I don't think that you can dodge the raindrops in this business. I think you've got to realize that rejection is actually just recognition that you're doing the job, maybe aggressively, which is a good thing because we're in a very proactive industry. So you've got to embrace rejection and use it as, you know, a signal that things are actually going right. If you're not getting rejected, especially, as I said, on the agency side of the business, you're probably not doing the job as hard as you need to do it. So I agree. Yeah. Yeah. So moving on away from mindset into sort of methods, because I like to do this sort of mindset methods and magic approach to most of the interviews I do on here when I remember. Um, so you've recruited for an agency, you've recruited for a startup, and now you're recruiting for a big public accounting corporation. Let's talk a little bit about, especially in today's market, you know, some of the key differences in methodology and approach that you've learned about on that journey. 
Yeah, you know, all very different environments because I went from sitting in a bullpen with 50 other people pre-pandemic to being a one-person team in the in the thick of the pandemic. And now as we're sort of figuring out this post-COVID era back on a team with a corporation, we have about, I think, 12 or 13 people on our team. Um, so all, all very different and all very special. You know, with, with agencies, it was a it was a lot of smile and dial, you know, as we were, we were talking about earlier, whether it was to candidates or to, um, to companies trying to get those job recs and those job orders. And I learned a ton. I, I'm very thankful for my time with them because it, it taught me a lot of what to do um, and what not to do. With the startup being a one-person team, you know, they brought me in and basically said, we we need reinforcements because we we don't recruit. We don't know what our strategy is. We don't know the best questions to ask. Do we do five interviews or one? Do we meet for an hour or for 20 minutes? They, you know, you take care of all of it. And so coming up with questions, writing the job descriptions, um, and just having a voice to be able to say, you know, this is seems to be what working this this isn't, and just be very, very creative was super, super fun with the only drawback of not having a team and feeling a little lonely at time. We had coworkers, obviously, but I was the only one thinking about recruiting um, all the time. And so not having those other people to be able to soundboard with or to vent to or whatnot, you know, it was a, it was an interesting experience experience. Um, whereas now, uh, recruiting for a company like Cone Resnick, you know, we we are, have about 3,000 people. I think we hired 1,600 in 2021. Um, we work with over 100 different agencies as well as doing our own sourcing and building our own teams out. So it's, it's very, very busy, but it's a different kind of busy than Robert Half. Robert Half was a lot of phones um, and email campaigns, whereas it measured results. The startup, it was a lot of creative work. And now you're just... I'm just talking to people all day. Uh, it's 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 the only thing I do now. It's just talk, 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 and it's super fun. Do you do a lot of outbound recruiting, or is because of the size of the brand and your presence in the marketplace, do you get a ton of inbound traffic? Not as much inbound traffic as I would like. Um, I, I still try to make. Uh, at least two hours of sourcing a day, if not more. Um, we got to do quite a bit to get to get the brand out there still. Okay, so how many messages are you getting out in two hours, especially with your personalization strategy? <sighs> I think I did thirty or forty today. Maybe, maybe even less. I might be pumping up my numbers to what I wish I did. Uh, but, but yeah, if I can get two hours, I can get twenty to thirty messages out pretty consistently. Um, and if that happens, I'm I'm happy. And they're all personal. Most of them, yeah. yeah. We are doing a test right now um, of doing a couple email campaigns. They've asked us to to do four or five of them, do them consistent, and see if anyone responds to them. This is week number two. My list is about 200 people. And to your point earlier, I've put together a, a sort of a blueprint of the of a message, so it looks like it's customized, you know, to this group of people to an extent. Um, but of the the 400 emails I've sent so far, not a single response. So, right. um, you know, and of the 30 I sent today, um, I think I already had two people reject them and one or two people say yes. So I, I'm, you know, better, better numbers. Yeah. I mean, response rates are down dramatically across many industries right now. And I think we're going to touch on that in a little bit. But yeah, just to acknowledge what you just said there about working for a startup. I haven't actually ever worked for a startup, but it sounds like a lot of fun because, you know, you have a seat at the top table, 
you're fully accountable for the talent strategy and all of the recruitment. But of course, there's nowhere to hide. And now what you're doing today, I'm not saying that it's any better or any worse, seems to be at the opposite end of the spectrum, you know, where you're part of a much larger team and you probably don't have a seat quite as high up in the sort of infrastructure of the company to sort of impact their talent strategy. I imagine a lot of what they do is sort of set in stone, right? Exactly. You're, you are correct. Yes. Yeah. Um, but you're having fun with it. I, I'm having a ton of fun. I definitely found my my uh, dream home when it comes to work, and, and I plan to be around for quite a while. Um, so so we're in a good place. Brilliant. Um, let's get back to messaging for a minute because, you know, there are two points of contact which are most important to recruiters today. And, you know, I've always said that the rubber meets the road when you have your very first conversation with a candidate, but your first point of contact is that very first message that you send out. Um, have you got any examples of messages you just talked about when you ran into somebody in the gym and you're furiously writing stuff down? Have you got any example of strategies or stories or approaches or personalizations that have worked for you in the last few months? Yeah, you know, I um, there have been a couple. One is... Uh, I relate to my days in public accounting because that's where I started out before I was in recruiting. So I'm able to either drop some some terminologies. Um, one that I came up with this year that I did in January that received um, a, a decent amount of responses. What the subject line was how to beat busy season. It's what the uh, accountants call the time frame from January to the tax deadline, which was yesterday when you're working, you know, 70 plus hours a week, depending on the firm that you work for. And I laid out all my strategies for how every year as I was going through busy season, what did I change from my schedule to my eating habits to when I went to the gym to what I did at the gym and and sort of what I prioritized and how each busy season, it got more and more successful. So I would sort of make it much more vague than I told you and just said, hey, this is how I, I busy season and I have a strategy in place. It's free. Um, you know, I have no, nothing to hide. If you'd like to hear about it, reach out and I'll let you know and hopefully add some value to your career and make the next three months a little bit less painful. And so I think by whenever I'm, I'm putting my messaging together, I'm trying to put it together from a standpoint of what value is it adding to them? Why would they, why would they care? Right. But if I'm able to, if they look at, you know, that intrigues them a little bit and then they look at my profile and see, okay, he works for in a similar industry. He also comes from doing the same kind of work I did. Let's see what this, let's see what this bald guy with the big beard is talking about. And, and yeah, I'll, I'll, I'd love to see what his strategies are. So there are some other ones as well. That's not the only, obviously the only message I use, but that's one that came, came to mind um, that people seemed really receptive to. Yeah. We've talked about this a lot on the podcast as well. And um, it ranges from people who say, I just send out a message that says, would you be open for a conversation? Literally those like five or six words to people who copy and paste job specs into their outreach, which I think is a ridiculous approach mm -hmm. to the whole thing. But obviously somewhere in the middle is where most people exist. And, um, and I, I think you just have to humanize your outreach these days and make it, make it more about them. Instead of copy and pasting job specs, you've got to talk about what that candidate could potentially gain by having a conversation with you. And I, I think it's dangerous to even sell the job too much in your first message. I think you really need to sell the conversation and why having a conversation with you wouldn't be such a bad idea, either now or for the future, right? I agree. I think it's it's probably been, Marcus, over 
It's probably been over a year since I ever used some sort of we're hiring. I'm, you know, I have this job. Um, I, I don't even, I don't even bring up that that I'm a recruiter or I'm hiring. I try to just think of something like I said in my first example of beating busy season of, you know, how I can try to make their add to their quality of life um, and, and see if there's some sort of value I can add to to upgrade them as a as a professional and a human being. Um, one of the other ones I used, I was just thinking about it and I forgot was, uh, oh, I talk, talking about their team, you know, you're spending, you're spending 40 plus hours a week in the office. It's good to, to, you know, enjoy your coworkers. Do you, are, are you know, do you like your coworkers or I, I forget the exact message, but I was touching on that pain point and it, it worked out. The results were interesting because the people that got the message that were not happy at work, of course, were very quick to work out because I, I touched on a problem. Oh, how did, how did he know that? Um, where, whereas the ones that ignored it, are hopefully just happy at work and and they don't need they don't have a problem to be solved. That's funny. Hi, can, hi, Mister Canada. Do you like the people that you work with? If not, call me right now on one eight hundred new jobs. That's it. That's it. That's a great one. But actually, you know what? That's that's the truth of the matter. People, we all know this. I'm I didn't make this up. People don't leave companies. People leave people. Yeah. It's for me culture is the way people treat each other in a company. That's the core of the culture. And that's, that's developed by the leadership team. But ultimately the way, you know, my wife said to me the other day, she said, I love my job. And I said, why do you love your job? And she said, because everybody treats each other so well. Everyone is so nice to each other. And I think that's what really matters in the culture of any organization today. And that's what keeps people and draws people to companies as well. Don't you think? Yeah, I remember with my first post-college job, um, you either do tax or audit, but then in addition to that, they want you to focus in on a specific industry, whether it's doing taxes for real estate companies, nonprofits, renewable energy, whatever it is. And um, about a year into that job, I remember I had gravitated towards the nonprofit team and I was telling my boss at the team, it had nothing to do with my interest in necessarily doing taxes for nonprofits. It's the fact that these are the people I resonate with. These are the people I'm going out to lunch with, having happy hours with, playing basketball with. And, and I, I chose it because that's where my friends were and I wanted to work with my friends. So there you have it. Yeah, brilliant. Um, you know, this is a tough market right now. And I think you've acknowledged earlier that response to messages um, is down, response to outreach is down. What, what can we do I mean, is it persistency? Is it consistency? How deep do we have to dig these days, you know, to stay on target as recruiters, both internally and as agency recruiters? Because the job hasn't got any easier, has it? No, I feel like it's funny because sometimes when that that fear starts to creep back up, as I mentioned earlier, I thought, how am I getting deeper and deeper into my career as a recruiter? And somehow my my messaging rates are getting lower and lower. Am I becoming worse at my job? And I don't think it's that. For me, the solution I found in the last six months has been consistency and staying organized and and reaching out to these candidates in every way possible. So like I said, the first the first time might be a, uh, a LinkedIn connection with a message attached. And then two and a half weeks later, it might be an email and then an email and then another email. And one email might just contain a meme and the next will contain a picture of me and my dog next to the Christmas tree with saying Merry Christmas. And then it's a text message. And then finally, um, you know, to and 
building content on LinkedIn is another one, um, posting regularly on LinkedIn so that when the day comes that they do log in, because I don't think accountants live on LinkedIn like you and I do. I think they check it periodically, a couple times a year. And I, I think it's important that when they log in, I'm the first thing they see in their feed. Um, and then they realize this guy's texted me, he's emailed me, he called me, and now he's on LinkedIn. Oh, and he has it. He's emailed me. You know, I okay. He's. I'll give him a shot. I'll see what. He, I'll see what he wants. Um, and the candidates that I've been talking to over the last couple months are those ones where I just make sure. All right, it's been three weeks since I've I've contacted contacted Marcus. What have I done so far? Um, let's switch it up and do something else. Yeah, and that, those are words of wisdom as well because I think the temptation with LinkedIn Recruiter and the LinkedIn Recruiter platform is to be one and done. You start up a project, you source 100 people, you send them your template, and then you deal with the five or six responses that come in and forget about everybody else, or just go and source another 100 people. So I, I think it is really important. And I know this is a bit of a, a cliche to say, you know, in order to sell anything to anybody, you've got to get on their radar seven or eight times or whatever it is. But it's so easy with our inboxes overflowing to ignore messages these days. And if someone is relentless and they get after me, especially with personalization, eventually, even if I don't want what they're selling, I am going to respond to them. So I think it's really important to, to know who your good candidates are and, and to source really tightly so that you can consistently go after them using all the methodologies that you've just said and you know maybe some sequencing email software like like Jam or, or Outreach or one of those platforms as well. Do you use any of those? No, not right now. Um, we are looking into them uh, uh, as a solution in 2022 because we're always trying to think about, you know, based off last year and either successes or wins, what should we pivot and do differently this year? Um, and we're demoing a few platforms this month. So that answer might be different a month from now. Um, but for now, no, we're not using those. Yeah, that's good stuff. What about your first conversations? Now, you're a very engaging person, we can tell on this podcast, and you've got a ton of personality, but what do you think it takes and what do you use to distinguish yourself when you first talk to a candidate? Usually, I, I just ask them, what, we, what, what do we want to talk about today? You know, I say, we, I, I appreciate the fact that you would, you would give me some of your time. It's, it's your most valuable commodity. I don't want to make an assumption about why we're on this phone call. I have my 12 compliance questions that I could start asking you if you're interested in a job at Cone Resnick. But ultimately, what, what do you want? You know, what, what would make you, what, what's triggering the fact that we even talked? Um, what, what's the perfect workplace? What would make you happier at work? And then sort of drive the conversation that way. Um, and I think it, it's it's funny because I've really taken some people by surprise when they start talking about how happy, unhappy, excuse me, they are in accounting and how they sort of just did it because, you know, my mom did it or my dad did it. Being a CPA is going to guarantee income, whether there's a pandemic or not a pandemic or recession or not a recession. There's always going to be money there. And I sort of did it because it was a safety net. But man, I'm 12 years in and I'm bored. And so I'll ask him, what do you do for fun? And, you know, one that comes to mind in particular was someone who wanted to be a full-time gamer. And I said, why, why don't you just start doing that in the evening for an hour every night? Go game and then do it on the weekends. And then maybe you quit your full-time job and get a part-time job. So you still have income coming in, but then you have more time for gaming and, and figure out what does it take to make money as a professional gamer and just start going and doing that. And, and he said, so you're not, you're not trying to, to get me to join. Cone Resnick, you're telling me I should leave the public accounting industry entirely. And I said, yeah, if it makes you happy. 
and he he says, "I just I I I don't understand, you know, what your motivation is." And between you and me, Marcus, you know, it's the fact that I don't think he's ever going to forget that that conversation. Um, but also now he's a great referral source, and whenever he knows someone in accounting that's looking for a job change, he says, "Start with David. See see what him and his company are doing, and if the stars align, great. And if David doesn't have anything for you, maybe he can facilitate another introduction." So um, I, I I think I also just love seeing you know confusing candidates when I, I'm pushing them to go to jobs that are have nothing to do with uh, with Cone Resnick. Yeah, I absolutely love that example. And you're talking about my favorite subject here, you know, which is getting to know the candidate and figuring out what they want to do with their lives. And I think you're absolutely right. I think that's the best advice you could ever give anybody is forget about what you want out of the call and give them what what they want out of the call because the chances are that person is not going to leave accounting to become, you know, an internationally renowned video gamer. Um, But they are going to reflect on that conversation and A, share your name with lots of other people and B, probably come back to you and say, you're the kind of person I'd love to work with. You know, why are you working at Cone Resnick? And so I think having your candidates interests at heart throughout any phone call and serving those interests is the ultimate way to build relationships and the ultimate way to build a referral network that will serve you much better than any cold outreach ever will, you know, as you start to grow that network, right? Yep. Agreed. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, Well, let's finish off here talking about content and copywriting because, well, I have to admit, I've been on a bit of a tear recently on LinkedIn, racking up several hundred thousands of views on some of my content. So I'm feeling a bit proud of myself. But what, what do you think the importance is of personal branding right now for recruiters? I think that there's, I don't know if it was your podcast, an article I read, but somewhere I saw the fact that there's over 19,000 recruiting agencies in the US. And I think that was just talking about agencies. I don't know if it was including internal recruiting teams like the one I'm on. So with all that noise, um, how do you know which recruiter to to work with how you know why 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 choose one over the other when you got 300 of them in your inbox so i i just i think that there's a power is not the word i'm looking for but there's something to be said for someone seeing your 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 posts on LinkedIn. You know, it gives you some credibility. It gives you some street cred, um, whether I'm talking about public accounting or the fact that I just bought a, you know, a, instead of a stand-up desk, I got a, got a lay-down desk and now I'm working from my bed 24-7 and can't remember the last time I put on a button-up shirt. You know, even if it's just sort of something like that, people people relate to it. Um, and, and I've... In the last month, I think I've got three people who um, didn't comment on the post, but messaged me, found my email, my phone number, and said, hey, saw, saw your information, saw a few job openings at your company that I'm interested in. Could we have a conversation? So if I can do something that takes 60 seconds as I'm drinking my morning coffee and just throw it on LinkedIn real quick and I'm going to get some great candidates out of it, um, why not do it, right? Yeah, couldn't agree more. And also, what's the point in connecting with all these people on LinkedIn if you're not going to talk to them? Because you're only going to pick up the phone to a tiny percentage of the people that you're actually connected to, especially obviously when you're connected to thousands of people. So the only reason to continue to connect with people in your marketplace is to then post and share some information and sometimes some fun with them. So when you do want to transact or prospect with them, they're familiar with your name and they'll pick up the call or they respond to your message. And so it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? But there's no point. 
There is no point in connecting with all these people if you're not going to do anything with that audience. You've got to feed your audience and water your audience. Um, and so I think building, you know, a relevant group of connected professionals, an audience that, that will serve your recruiting needs in the long term, and then keeping in touch with them on a regular basis just makes the job a lot easier down the road, right? It, it does make the job a lot easier. And it, it's funny, Marcus, because um, I, I mostly network with recruiters on LinkedIn. You know, like I said, I get the few interviews, but I, I have a lot of recruiters like yourself who just post some really great stuff where I'm either A, learning something or or B, it just motivates me to, to put my best foot forward that day at work. And I will try to find other recruiters and I'll send them a connection request sometimes and they may or may not accept it. And then they post something and I'll, I'll comment on it and say, hey, this is a message I used last week. I ended up you know, getting a ton of responses to it. Here it is. Cater it for your jobs. And every now and then they'll they'll message me directly and, and be sort of weirded out and, and say like, hey. Why, why did you give me that free message? <laughs> or they seem like sort of confused why I would essentially try to help the competition. And I think that you, at the end of the day, you got recruiters with a mindset of abundance where we know we can help each other and learn from each other. And there are more than enough candidates for all of us. And then you have some others where um, I almost think they forgot what it, what it means to network on a platform like LinkedIn, you know, and they, they get confused by it. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that too. And and on the podcast, I like to delve into, you know, everyone's got a magical touch as a recruiter, but I think you've revealed yours. I think it is just being authentic and giving people what they want and finding out what they want first um, and not having your own interests primarily at heart in every conversation or every message that you send out. Is, is there anything else that you would say, you know, you do a little bit differently or what's your final word on, you know, your secret sauce, David? <sighs> I, I would say, you know, one for me that I, I really enjoyed using, and, and I appreciate the the compliments, is um, to your point, I think if people can hear my voice, um, it does cut through the noise, pun intended. And so when LinkedIn did that new feature where you can send a message through your phone and send a 60-second audio message, that's been where I've been getting some of my greatest success of just dropping a 50 to 60-second message of whatever it may be. Hey, Marcus, thanks for connecting with me on LinkedIn. I know we don't know each other from Adam, but I saw that you're working at Moss Adams. I know a ton of people people there. Great company. Hope you're happy. Um, you know, We're going into busy season. I wish you the best of luck. If you want any strategies to how to make your busy season a little bit more effective, let me know. But if you just want to be connections on LinkedIn as well, I'm perfectly okay with that. Thanks again for connecting and have a great day. And and, and people seem they they it, it seems to work. It's a feature that I absolutely have fallen in love with, and it takes a little bit more time, you know, six, 60 seconds to think of the message, say it. Um, but even if I mess up in the message, I won't re-record it and delete it because I want them to tell that. To your point, I'm, I'm just being authentic and I make mistakes too and I don't always speak perfectly and I'm fine with that. Um, and, and so if you haven't tried it, uh, try it a few times on, on some candidates this week. You might like the response. That's a great tip there. And in fact, I think you may be the first person to bring that up, although it's possible that I've just got a really bad memory. But what a great strategy because obviously when you receive one of those voice messages through the LinkedIn platform, it has to be personal. Um, I mean, there's probably no way of automating that yet. And you're going to identify your yourself throughout that message. Um, you're going to identify personally with them throughout that message. So it's a, it must be a very powerful way indeed of connecting with and, um, you know, driving 
activity through your LinkedIn network. So thanks a lot for that that tip there, mate. Really appreciate it. Um, hey, this has been fun. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. I knew it was going to be fun having a chat with you. And um, we're obviously going to keep in touch and, and we'll chat again soon, David. Cool. Marcus, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. I had a ton of fun talking with you. And hopefully we can keep in touch down the road. Excellent stuff. Okay. David Daredevil Eau Claire, goodbye for now. And we'll speak again soon. Cheers. Bye, Marcus. Bye.